You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about preventing weight-based harm. And joining me, I have two guests from CHOP. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Eleanor Benner, who's a psychologist with the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the Eating Disorder Assessment and Treatment Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So welcome, Dr. Benner. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Thank you. And also joining us is Carrie Heckert, who's a clinical dietitian with the Clinical Nutrition Program. She supports the Eating Disorder Assessment and Treatment Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for joining us today, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Well, I'm excited to have both of you talk about preventing weight-based harm with me. And I think where I wanted to start was talking about the interaction between eating disorders and patients with a higher weight. I've had some patients who met criteria for obesity with a BMI above the 95th percentile. And then I noticed that as they lost weight, they were applauded for their efforts by multiple healthcare providers. And over time, it became apparent that there was disordered eating developing rather than healthy lifestyle changes accounting for the weight loss. And I believe that these signs would have been recognized much earlier if the patients were at the bottom of the growth curves to begin with. And so how often are obesity and eating disorders related or is what I'm seeing an anomaly? Such a good question, Katie. This is Carrie. Um, so from a dietitian perspective and a clinical perspective overall, it is definitely not an anomaly. Eating disorders affect people in bodies of all shapes and sizes, and often the diets that are diagnosed as restrictive eating disorders in people living in smaller bodies are prescribed to people living in larger bodies. In fact, atypical anorexia nervosa, which is simply anorexia in someone in a larger body, has a lifetime prevalence that doubles to triples that of anorexia nervosa. Hmm. Weight is not a behavior. But diets are often the go-to recommendation to make a larger body smaller in the pursuit of health. And I say health in air quotes. But dieting is a significant risk factor for the development of an eating disorder, binge eating, and creating a dysregulated relationship with food and appetite. And research has repeatedly shown that weight loss dieting demonstrates no consistent health benefits. And that includes sustained weight loss. And in fact, 95% of dieters are going to regain the weight that they lost, and up to two-thirds of them regain more weight than what they initially lost. So the problem is when somebody diets and the diet fails, which research says is pretty probable, they often get into yo-yo dieting, and it's this weight cycling up and down. So this is what has the long-term cardiometabolic consequences that we normally attribute to higher body weights. That's fascinating and something that I know many people are probably connecting with having been on diets in the past and we just entered a new year and that's often people's resolutions. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I think this is a great topic for us to be talking about now, but also something that I think we all know intuitively makes sense, but sometimes in practice isn't what we do. So it seems like what I'm seeing in these patients is that sometimes the way we talk about weight and food contributes to the development of an eating disorder. So in 
my patients who are children or teenagers with obesity, how should we be talking about weight and their diets without causing harm? Katie, it's such a great question, and this is Allie speaking. So as a psychologist, we know that the way in which we talk about weight and food and diet culture in particular can certainly be a risk and a contributing factor to the onset of an eating disorder, particularly in individuals who are genetically predisposed to develop an eating disorder. And the tricky thing is it becomes harmful when we don't know which individuals are at greatest genetic risk and make generalized statements regarding health and well-being. That being said, it's also important to highlight that we don't know what causes eating disorders. Mm. We know that it's a very complicated interaction of genetics, temperament, environment, and social factors, but that no one statement can lead to an eating disorder. So rather than talking about weight specifically, what we want to do is talk about health-promoting behaviors. And I'm going to quote my partner in crime, Carrie, here, (laughs) who always says that we can all benefit from moving our bodies in ways that feel good, eating delicious and nutritious foods, engaging and spending time with friends and loved ones, and doing things that bring us joy and give us confidence. So instead of referencing weight loss, we really want to encourage these types of actions that will certainly benefit health and may even impact weight, although the latter isn't the explicit goal. Additionally, instead of encouraging exercise designed to lose weight or to be quote-unquote healthy, we want to support joyful movement. So moving one's body in a way that feels good is fun and is social. Maybe some weeks that's more, some weeks that's less. We know that activity exists on a spectrum, right? And so some individuals are more or less active than others, and that's totally okay. Some kids like sports, some like hiking, some prefer theater or gaming. And so we really want to promote all types of movements that kids and teens enjoy rather than prescribing a rigid amount of exercise for X number of days per week. I think it's also really important to remember here that kids are not just little adults, right? And so kids' needs are different, and the way in which we talk about eating and activity needs to be different in that regard as well. And then lastly, really wanting to recognize sociodemographic variables that impact weight and eating behaviors as well. Individuals may not have the same access to fruits, vegetables, fresh foods on a regular basis due to financial or geographical constraints. Sometimes convenient foods are what they have available to them, and so individuals may also gravitate towards certain foods based on cultural or religious practices and values. And so we need to move away from recommending a one-size-fits-all approach to eating, for example, my plate or the food pyramid, move away from making assumptions about weight and eating, and really talk about eating a flexible, balanced diet in a culturally inclusive way. I love that individualized approach and not using a one-size-fits-all framework for this. So thank you for sharing that. A lot of the same tools can teach kids, regardless of their body size, to have good relationships with food. And the size of a kid's body doesn't determine the amount or the types of food that that child should eat. And families in general should just stop talking about weight, period. Like, hard stop. Their weight, their kids' weight, the weights of strangers, the weights of celebrities. Literally making your house a body talk-free zone. And for parents... Just simply prioritizing family meals, offering a regular meal and snack routine, and then trusting their kids to know what foods would feel good and taste good to eat and what amount of food feels satisfying at that time. Resisting that urge to forbid certain foods and demand trying or completing others, we can let parents own the job of offering a variety of foods and then let kids own the job of eating it. I love that. And in my house, my kids can tell you that we always talk about how we don't talk about other people's bodies, and we don't even really talk about our own bodies. So what are some of the other common problematic behaviors that you see families make around weight that they might not even realize that they're doing? 
Yeah, so I'm answering this as a psychologist, but also a new mom who is very quickly learning that kids pick up on everything, Mm -hmm. right? They see and hear everything that parents and caregivers model around communication, eating, activity, their bodies, relationships, et cetera. As parents ourselves, it is so, so hard to not fall into diet culture or fat talk traps, right? And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, kids pick up on this. And so as a provider and a caregiver, we can model food neutrality, uh, which means calling foods by their name instead of labeling them as good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, clean, superfoods, right? Right. I mean, if we think about clean, if I'm not eating clean, then what am I eating? Dirty, right? (laughs) Right. Think about how that makes you feel. And so by just calling foods what they are and removing those labels, it really can help remove stigma and shame around eating. Yeah, I agree. Avoiding those disparaging comments about your own body or the body of others. It's like when kids hear grownups complaining about their bodies, they just assume that it's normal to be dissatisfied with your own body. And modeling a healthy body image is one of the most powerful things parents can do to instill body confidence. And talking about moving for joy rather than burning calories or losing weight and focusing on all the amazing things your body can do rather than how it looks. Kids and teens in larger bodies benefit way more from us empathizing with and accepting them than us trying to help them change their body. It's just not a parent's job to control their child's shape and size. And and as parents, we're just trying to do the best we can, but we can let that stress go. And we can celebrate the beauty of body diversity and let kids know that bodies come in all shapes and sizes and abilities. And those things change over time. And all of that is normal. Those are great tips. Yeah, this is a frame shift for many parents who were not raised this way, but it's something that they can do to change how their children are raised. And so really important points that you're calling out for us. One of the things that I'm really passionate about are family meals. And it seems as my kids get older and get more involved in after-school activities, clubs, sports, things like that, finding time for family meals can be really challenging. But can you tell us some of the evidence behind why family meals are so important so that we can all reinvest in our efforts to really make sure that family meals happen? This is Carrie and same. Life can make sitting down for regular (laughs) family meals so challenging. The benefits to family meals are that they're likely to include more nutrient-dense foods like fruits and vegetables compared to an eating occasion that is selected solo by the child or the teenager. Eating meals together provides this amazing opportunity for emotional connection and regulation that can then be translated outside the home. This opportunity for parental modeling of healthful eating behaviors, manners, polite refusals, recognition of satiety cues, and exposure to new foods They all happen at the shared meal. Family meals have also been shown to be protective against dieting, purging, and binge eating, as well as adolescent substance abuse, sexual activity, and suicidality. And it doesn't have to be three meals every day either. Research has shown that even one to two family meals per week can have positive and protective effects. Okay, well, that's a good bar for us to keep in mind. It doesn't have to be seven days a week, three meals a day. I think uh, a few times a week is definitely achievable. And like you said, there are so many benefits to that. Now, something else that you both have taught me over time is that regardless of a child's body size, it's important not to set restrictions or put pressure on them to eat, but rather kids should listen to their own bodies. So how do we practically do that? How do we teach kids and parents to eat intuitively? I mean, that is a talk in and of itself. (laughs) But (laughs) most children and teens don't need to be taught. They still have well-intact hunger and satiety cues, and they are natural intuitive eaters. Problems arise when kids start to distrust those internal cues, 
and worry that they have to rely on some sort of external meal plan, calorie count, or influencer diet trend to decide Mm -hmm. what and how much to eat. Ellen Satter's division of responsibility is an evidence-based approach that applies to every stage of child development from infancy all the way through adolescence. And it clearly delineates the role of the parent and the role of the child when it comes to the feeding relationship. So the parent's job is to decide what food is being served, when meals and snacks are going to be offered, and where the eating is going to take place. Then the child's job is to decide how much or whether they're going to eat from what the parents offer. There's no good foods or bad foods. There's no forcing to try new foods, no demands to clean the plate, any bribes to earn treats. Everyone stays in their own lane. So when the parent does their job with feeding, the child does their job with eating. And then part of the feeding job is parents trusting their kids that they will learn to eat the amount that they need, that they'll eat food that they enjoy, and that they will grow predictably in the way that is right for them. I love that. Those, I love the focus on parents providing what to feed and the child deciding what to eat. And so thank you for telling us what really is natural, as you said. It's not something that we should have to learn, but it is a little bit of a frame shift for many people in the way that, again, they were raised to clean their plate and things like that. So it's important that we don't propagate some of these things that can be harmful. Another thing when we're thinking about harm is that there's a lot of social stigma around obesity and bias against people in larger bodies in general, and people make assumptions about their behavior based on their body size. So can you talk about how we misconstrue body size as a marker of health? Absolutely. So as weight-inclusive anti-diet clinicians, Ellie and I strongly disagree with obesity being defined as a disease. BMI does not determine health or fitness, and one's body size can in no way be the single factor for diagnosing illness. Eating disorders are life-threatening illnesses. They affect physical, psychological, and social functioning. But weight, BMI, that's not a disease. I think it's also important to think about the way in which BMI is currently used or misused, right? We know that it was not created for nor intended to be used on individuals, and yet that's largely the way in which it's used most days. We also know that if you look at BMI and life expectancy, it turns out that the lowest incidence of death is actually in the overweight and obese categories. When we look at certain health outcomes, we actually know that zip code is more predictive of health than BMI, and that many health indicators of risks associated with high BMI, such as blood pressure, blood lipids, and insulin, can be improved by changing health behaviors with no change in weight at all. I think as providers, we also have to acknowledge our own internalized weight bias and fat phobia and the way in which that impacts our interactions with patients. The research on this is overwhelming across healthcare professions. Two same race, same age, same gendered individuals can present to their primary care physicians or a specialist with identical medical concerns. One of them is in a larger body and one of them is in a smaller body. All types of healthcare providers, including mental health professionals, are significantly more likely to recommend weight loss to the patient in a larger body than the one in a smaller body. And us sharing this information you know, certainly isn't meant to shame any healthcare providers, including myself and Carrie, because the reality is that diet culture is to blame for this and is pervasive. But instead, we really want to, in addition to acknowledging our bias, adopt a health at every size approach. Health at Every Size is a weight-inclusive approach that promotes a healthy lifestyle without using weight change as an outcome. 
Health at Every Size could in and of itself be its own podcast. And so we would encourage folks to do more research around this. But for us at CHOP, Hayes or Health at Every Size is apparent in the spirit of our work every day, most notably in the way in which we set goal weights and empowering families to resist against diet culture and other harmful societal messaging about one's weight, health, and eating. Now, there's a lot of talk these days about body positivity. Is the goal, though, that everyone should love their bodies all the time? That phrase is a little bit of a like a headline that you hear, but what does it really mean? <laughs> Katie, I love this question, and I'm so glad that you're asking. <laughs> Obviously, I have feelings on the topic. So the, the body positivity movement started in the 1960s and is based in the tenet that all bodies are beautiful regardless of their appearance and promotes acceptance of all body shapes, sizes, gender, sexual orientation, race, etc., really meant to be inclusive. This movement was intended to counter the unrealistic and unattainable standards of appearance that are promoted in the media. For example, the thin ideal or what's currently being known as like scary skinny, making a re-entrance into social media. I kind of have similar thoughts to you, right? And would argue that it's equally unrealistic to expect and encourage people to feel beautiful about their body the majority of the time. And that actually by encouraging this, the body positivity movement continues to place value on one's external appearance. Mm -hmm. So instead, I might encourage something like body neutrality, which really emphasizes a neutral feeling about one's body, neither positive nor negative towards the body. It encourages a person to concentrate on how their body serves them and what it does for them rather than how it looks. Similar to body positivity, body neutrality challenges traditional beauty standards. However, unlike body positivity, it counters the view that an individual's value stems from their appearance and instead places no value on appearance. So in other words, body neutrality takes the focus off appearance and puts it on the body's function. It acknowledges the fact that a person will not always feel good about their body. The constant pressure on a person to feel positive about their body can be frustrating and is very unrealistic, especially as bodily changes are due to factors way outside their control, such as aging. Proponents of body neutrality say that by placing a body's value on what it does rather than its appearance, it actually promotes a healthier attitude and better self-esteem. So my goal for myself and others isn't to strive to love and accept one's body, rather to focus on what your body does for you. It allowed me to grow and give birth to my amazing baby girl. It enables me to walk with Sophie every day, my dog. And it also allows me to play tag with my nephew who beats me every time. (laughs) That's great. And I I really think this is an important message for moms to hear as as you kind of called out yourself. And as we try to get in the photos more, there's so many moms who I hear saying that they don't want to be on the other side of the camera because they don't feel good about their body. And then Mm -hmm. I always tell them, like, look at the images that you're saving for your children as they grow up. Like, where are you in these images, right? So Mm -hmm. it's really important that we don't wait to be at that, you know, idealized image of what we want to look like before we allow ourselves to be captured on film and be present with our families. And so I really like focusing, like you said, on function. Look what you did. You grew a baby. That's an amazing accomplishment of you and your body. And so focusing on that versus the number on the scale that day. As pediatricians, we do a fair bit of nutrition counseling. And I'll say with very little credentials to back that up, Carrie. But how should we be talking about foods to encourage a healthy diet, and I'll use air quotes for you too, without potentially creating issues around food. Yeah, this is also a stray away from kind of, you know, back in school, the way I learned to talk about food and nutrition and counseling. When it comes to talking about food, 
we want to focus on food neutrality. The idea that with exception to certain diseases and allergies, no food is inherently good or bad. Mm -hmm. No food will cure or kill you. And your self-worth is not dependent upon what you do or don't eat. There are certainly some foods that do more in the body and some foods that do less. But that doesn't make one food morally better or worse than another. We want our kids to maintain that confidence in listening to their internal hunger and fullness cues and realize that food is way more than its ingredients. It's social, it's emotional, it's cultural, it's experiential. There's joy in eating. And sometimes as adults, I fear that we've lost that and we don't want that for our kids. And again, like parents are just trying to do their best with what they have to, available to them. And that includes getting their kids to eat nutritious foods. And intuitive eating doesn't mean that you eat whatever you want, whenever you want it, and there's no regard to anything else. It's just that sometimes these intentions can unintentionally backfire. So when parents limit their kids' access to and consumption of preferred, again, air quotes, junk food, mm -hmm. and air quotes because this is often the term used for high fat, high calorie foods with low nutrient density, these foods become extra exciting. And this external restriction interferes with kids' internal ability to regulate how much of that food actually feels good to eat in that moment. So they eat as much as they possibly can now because who knows when they're going to get this chance again. It's not a free-for-all in the pantry. But I would suggest that parents start to consider letting your kid have access to the entire box of Oreos at snack time or the whole box of candy at the movies. They may eat more than what feels good if they've been restricted for a while. That's okay. You can remind them that their body knows what to do, this uncomfortable feeling will pass, and then remind yourself that this is part of the process. Once the novelty wears off, those foods may still be preferred, but they won't be nearly as intoxicatingly exciting, and they'll self-regulate naturally knowing they're gonna have access again. We do this every fall with candy corn. We put a huge <laughs> container of candy corn out on our dining room table. It is the hot ticket for like a day or two. And then I throw out a bag and a half of candy corn a month later because it's not as exciting anymore. The other option is some parents choose to simply not keep those foods in the house. They don't want temptation there. They don't want their kids to have access to it. Just they don't do it. But then they miss out on this opportunity to model how to have a healthy relationship with these foods. And then the kids go into the outside world and they don't know how to self-regulate around it. Another thing I see a lot is requiring a child to eat a certain healthy food, again, air quotes, for example, broccoli, in order to earn a less healthy food, like cupcakes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make them like the broccoli anymore. So research <laughs> has shown over and over again that the more limited you feel around a food, the cupcake, the more you feel like you don't have permission to eat it, the more fixated on it you will be and the more you crave it. And then the more you say to kids, I want you to eat your fruits and vegetables. They're healthy for you. You have to eat these first. Well, that just makes the fruit and vegetables way less interesting. And the harder you push the food, the less the kid is going to like it. Right. It becomes like a chore. Mm -hmm. um, kids don't like the idea of something that sounds like adults really want it. That's the first lesson of parenting. Yeah. <laughs> if they see how much you want it, they're not going to do it, whether whether it's an early developmental milestone or it's eating. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget. And it's like working through the bad food to get to the good food. It's very reverse psychology. Yeah. I'll never forget the feeling that I had after I ate too much cotton candy at the county fair, but I learned to regulate down the road and I still eat cotton candy. I just don't <laughs> eat uh, many bags of it anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, 
Besides looking at the number on the scale and following growth charts in clinic, what are some of the other early red flags for an eating disorder that we should be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, I'm so happy that you're asking this because you're right. It's much, much more than just weight loss. So we want to keep an eye on just in general rigidity around eating and generally above and beyond what is typical for a parent's kid. Lack of adequate nutrition can cause literal changes in the size and function of the brain, and it can lead to worsened or the onset of cognitive and behavioral rigidity. So for example, kids, we can see increased difficulty pivoting when a situation doesn't go as expected, such as the inability to choose what to eat when a restaurant doesn't have their expected or preferred or planned meal, for example. So increased rigidity is definitely one red flag. We would also be curious about avoidance of meals or changes in eating behaviors. So, for example, eating less at meals, attempting to eat, air quotes, healthier, which is often well-intended, but to the point that becomes rigid and restrictive, exclusion of entire food groups, an increased focus both in terms of time and attention on eating or what is in foods or on preparing foods, more time spent cooking, baking for others, but not partaking oneself in one's making, and then generally speaking, avoidance of eating with others. We would also be concerned about, and this is especially true for kids and adolescents because we know that eating disorders often present differently in that population, but being concerned about report of decreased appetite or other physical complaints as a consistent reason for not eating. So early satiety, decreased hunger, some GI complaints, all of which could be a side effect of not eating enough as well. Mm. We would also want to pay attention to extensive research about exercise, weight loss, nutritional information, et cetera. Just kind of this overall planning around eating and an inability to kind of pivot and be flexible to the same extent. Lastly, we would also be really concerned if there were any kind of warning signs of vomiting that parents were aware of, as well as notable increases in physical activity. So for example, working out above and beyond what a coach or a trainer suggests, spending hours in the gym each day, being unable to take a rest day, or eating differently if they do take a rest day, etc., things like that. In addition to changes around eating, we would also be curious about potential signs of social withdrawal and isolation or decreased interest in activities that they previously enjoyed doing due to the amount of time spent researching or focusing on food prep or exercise, for example. And we certainly know that hanger is real, right? And that (laughs) prolonged energy deficits as a result of too much activity and or not enough nutrition really can lead to changes in mood and personality. We know from the Minnesota Starvation Study that men who were put on a calorie-restricted diet and lost weight developed anxiety, depression, irritability, all secondary to weight loss, and all of which resolved upon weight gain following the conclusion of the study. Now, certainly teenage angst is also real, right? And so I would caveat this by saying that changes in mood alone may not indicate concern for an eating disorder, but in combination with some of these other red flags should certainly prompt further curiosity. Right. And you're not saying that any of these red flags are diagnostic. We're just saying these are things to look out for. And it might be enough to prompt a workup to see if maybe, as you said, there could be something GI related going on or the GI symptoms could be related to an eating disorder. So these are things to keep in mind as red flags for further screening and management, but not necessarily diagnostic. Now, on that note, if we do have concerns about an eating disorder in the patient, what should we do first in the primary care world? So first and foremost, you want to ensure medical stability, right, and run a full medical workup and really ensuring medical stability by checking orthostatics as well as the lab work. 
Once you've deemed that the patient is medically stable for outpatient care, if they're presenting with weight loss or weight maintenance, otherwise known as lack of weight gain, and they deny additional eating disorder behaviors or cognitions, you certainly could suggest that they eat more to gain weight and see what happens, right? Mm -hmm. Although it's important to note that individuals no longer need to endorse a desire to lose weight to be diagnosed with an eating disorder, and in fact, younger patients are much less likely to present with this criteria, an inability to gain weight regardless of the reason, so long as there's no organic cause for this, is enough to support an eating disorder diagnosis. Certainly, while they're trying to gain weight on their own, we would encourage regular weight and vitals checks with you during this waiting period and also while awaiting additional treatment if indicated. If that patient is able to gain weight without additional intervention, great, perfect. Then no further steps are needed. If not, a referral for eating disorder assessment and treatment could potentially be helpful. If the individual is unable to gain weight independently, there are definitely a few things you can recommend first and foremost while the family awaits specialized assessment and treatment if you've decided to place a referral. First and foremost, we would empower you to put parents and caregivers in charge of their child's eating. When an individual isn't eating enough, the hormones that regulate hunger and satiety become dysregulated such that they no longer feel hungry and feel full after several bites. Additionally, the brains of individuals with an eating disorder respond differently to eating than those without, such that the pleasure pathways in the brain are not activated by eating, and in fact, eating feels aversive to these individuals versus to those of us without an eating disorder. Not eating feels aversive, right? And we actually feel better after eating. Lastly, a symptom of anorexia in particular is anosognosia, or the inability to recognize that there's a problem and the seriousness of such problem. Thus, our patients don't feel hungry, eating feels aversive, and they don't believe that they need to eat more, which can make it really difficult for them to be intrinsically motivated to eat more. Eating disorders are egocentric, so it's critical for caregivers to assume responsibility for their child's eating. This often feels counterintuitive to parents whose children or teens are at the age of growing independence. Metaphors can be really helpful here. Right, If their child was diagnosed with cancer and didn't believe that they needed to receive chemotherapy because they felt better without going to chemo and didn't enjoy the side effects of this treatment, the caregiver wouldn't allow them to just opt out of treatment, right? They would ensure that their child received the life-sustaining treatment that they needed, and the same of true of eating disorders. Food is the medicine, and it's parents' jobs to ensure that their child takes the medicine. Parents can also be encouraged to provide three meals and three snacks a day, all of which should be chosen, prepared, served, and ideally supervised by parents, and they really should provide nutritionally dense foods. Often our kiddos need upwards of three to 4,000 calories to gain weight if this is relevant for them, which can be a large volume of food. And so in order to make this a bit more tolerable for kids, we want to encourage foods that are high in nutrition but low in volume. So for example, you can eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's or a crate of spinach. Same amount of calories, just very different volumes. Kids may also need to take a break from physical activity like sports, school, hobbies to conserve energy in order to facilitate weight gain. And so in addition to some of those dietary changes and putting parents in charge, we would also recommend considering a break from physical activity. Thank you for summarizing so many things so quickly for us about eating disorder assessment and treatment. And we appreciate all that you both do at our eating disorder assessment and treatment program at CHOP to help care for these patients when they need that level of care. So I really appreciate you talking to us more about how to prevent weight-based harm. It's something that I think all of us really struggle with sometimes since, as we talked about, it's against some of the tenets that we were taught during our training. And you're really giving us a more modern way to look at this topic that I really appreciate. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. This was great, Katie. Agreed. Thanks so much for having us. This is wonderful. Thank you both for coming. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. 
you can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 